Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back. We are on June 17th through 23rd, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. It is finished. And so today, what we're going to be talking about is the trials of Christ and the crucifixion. And I will tell you honestly, for the longest time, I have had issues with talking about Christ's crucifixion. I feel like, you know, sometimes we tend to like go really in depth into the crucifixion and like, and then they drove the nails into his hands and, you know, we get into the nitty-gritty of like what happened and I think I have a hard time with this because I'm just really sensitive and so it's just really hard for me to focus on but if it's something that you like to focus on and you feel like it brings you closer to your savior then I say go for it Um, but it's just not something that I can do to bring myself closer to my savior and even you know like the movies that have come out like the passion of the Christ I did not go to see I did not even want to go to see even the LDS videos that come out that show the crucifixion I just don't like it right so I had a really hard time this this week knowing that this is what we were going to be talking about. But something that helped me out with this, and this is going to sound silly, but um, I watched the movie Marley and Me this week. And as I'm watching this movie, you know, they've got this crazy dog and the crazy dog becomes part of their family and they just, you know, have to do all this crazy stuff with this dog. At the very end, the dog gets sick and they have to go put the dog down. And I realized that as they were putting the dog to sleep, you know, because he was sick, that part of owning a pet is not only the life that they bring to your family and enjoying the love that they have for you, but it's also being there for them in the end, Um, in their final moments, being there for them and loving them through it. And so that kind of helped me see the whole crucifixion of Christ in a different way that instead of, you know, having to see every little ounce of hurt that they are inflicting upon my Savior, bearing witness to what is happening is what I'm going to try and do. Um, And being with him as he goes through this agony and as he goes through these moments and bearing witness and seeing him complete the cycle of the atonement is kind of where I felt like I started seeing myself focus on this week instead of just like closing my eyes against like, you know, the nails and all that stuff, but instead to bear witness of Christ and what he's done for me. And another thing that really kind of helped bring my mind kind of wrap around this was the introduction from last week's Come Follow Me. It said, while we were not physically present to witness this act of selflessness and submission, in a sense, we can all be witnesses of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says, every time we repent and receive forgiveness of our sins, and every time we feel the Savior's strengthening power, we 
can testify of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. So every time that we use the atonement in our lives and every time we feel his strengthening power, we can testify not only of Gethsemane, but also of the cross. And I think it's important too, because a lot of times, especially in our church, I think we tend to overlook the power of the cross, you know, and then I see the pendulum swing the other way here in the South where everything is all about the cross and they don't pay any attention to the Garden of Gethsemane. But I think there are three essential things that had to happen for the atonement to be complete. And the first one was the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to take on him the sins of all the world, right? And that's what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then on the cross, he laid down his life for us. So he gave his life in place of our own. And then in the resurrection, which is the third part, he takes up life again and defeats death. So I think it's really important for all three of those ingredients, as it were, to be in the atonement. So as we go through and we study these different happenings, um, we can kind of bear witness that they happened every time we use the atonement, every time we feel a strengthening power in our life, every time we believe that we will see someone again after they have died, you know, we are bearing witness to what Christ has done in all three of those situations. So that's kind of where I'm coming from this week. Okay, so one of the things that really fascinated me this week was the trials of Christ. And I had not really, I guess, paid much attention to it before. Um, I guess everything had been so focused on, you know, the cross and Garden of Gethsemane that I really didn't pay attention to, like, what happened in between. And so this week it was something I was really drawn to, um, really kind of looking at the different trials and when they took place and who was involved and, you know, that kind of thing. That really kind of opened my eyes to a terrible miscarriage of justice that took place um, before Christ was placed on the cross. And this is neither here nor there. It's not like soul-saving doctrine that we need to know about, but I just found it interesting. So um, we're going to kind of sister frizzle it up with the trials. Um, Instead, I'm going to call this Law and Order Ancient Israel Edition. That's right. I even have the law and order sound to make it more authentic for you. Okay, so as we go through the trials of Christ here, I'm going to be using a lot of different references, really about the laws and things like that that were going on in the Jewish culture at the time. And the two references mainly that I used was gotquestions.org and the Christian Courier. And I'll post both of those articles that I used on my Facebook page and on my blog, and I'll tweet it out. Instagram followers, I'm sorry, links don't work so hot on Instagram. But um, you can find it if you follow my Facebook page or my blog. So as we talk about the trials of Christ, there are some things that we need to know. First of all, this kind of blew my mind. I had never even really thought about this, about when the trials took place. But in fact, like up until this week, I literally thought that the trials took place like over the course of a couple of days. Like I thought that this was like, you know, maybe day one was when he met with the Jewish elders and then the next day Herod and then Pilate. And, you know, I didn't understand that, no, this happened like so fast. Like these six trials, there were six different instances where he was questioned. And those six different instances, I'm going to call them trials, okay, because we're doing law and order, right? So we're in calm trials where he's questioned. Um, But those six different trials were carried out from 2 a.m. in the morning when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane all the way till 10 a.m. when he is on the cross being crucified. Okay, so that's eight hours that this all took place in the middle of. Like that, to me, is insane. That is so fast. Like, how can you make up your mind about anyone's guilt or innocence within eight hours, right? And so, again, 
you know, because we are in the middle of Jewish society and Jewish culture in ancient Israel, and you know, they were a rule-loving society. You know, we've seen that over and over again. They love them some rules. And so there were all kinds of rules about trials. There were all kinds of rules about trials about blasphemy. There were all kinds of rules about trials for capital offenses. I mean, all kinds of rules. And these guys broke them left and right to be able to get Jesus on the cross. So we're going to go in and we're going to talk about some of the rules that they broke. Also at this point, I want to pause and I want to say something because I think a lot of times we say, oh, the Jews killed Jesus. And in some instances, I think that can even kind of breed some anti-Semitism. And I want to make sure that people know that number one, this was not all the Jews. This was like a select handful of like the leaders there in the Jewish culture. The people actually really kind of loved Jesus, right? And then the second thing is nobody killed Jesus. Jesus laid down his life on purpose. No one actually killed him. He decided to die. There's a very big difference there. No one could actually kill Christ unless he decided it was okay, right? So Jesus laid down his life. He was not killed. So I think that's important as well. So the Jews, this was not the entire populace. This was just a handful of corrupt elders that were there in ancient Israel. So I want to make sure I said that as well. All right. So we have our six trials. The first trial. Sorry, I've got the sound effect. I'm totally going to use it. (laughs) Okay. So the first trial. It was at Annas' house. Annas is a former high priest. He was deposed actually nine years ago, um, but he retained the title, kind of like, you know, how we have our bishops in our wards today, where, you know, once a bishop, we always refer to them as Bishop Smith or whatever, okay? So he was still, you know, high priest Annas. He was also Caiaphas' father-in-law, so, you know, there was some colluding, I'm sure, going on here. And so they take him to Annas' house. The charges when he got to Annas' house was blasphemy, and claiming to be the son of God. Now, there was no legal reason for them to take Jesus to Annas' house because Annas has no power. He has no authority whatsoever in Jewish law or Jewish society, but they take him there anyway for questioning. And the outcome of that is they decide that he is guilty of blasphemy and they send him on to Caiaphas. Well, Caiaphas, who's the current high priest, is definitely not an impartial audience. You know, we said that the judges and everything had to be impartial. He is not impartial. He's totally biased because he was the first one who said, hey, we need to put this guy to death. And we see that actually back in John 11, 49 and 50. And it says, and one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and the whole nation perish not. So what happened here is, you know, Jesus was causing all kinds of uproar and stuff like that. And Caiaphas was concerned, you know, I'm saying that with quotation marks, concerned that Jesus and all of the, you know, hubbub that he was creating was going to get the attention of the Romans and that the Romans would come in and like take vengeance out upon the Jewish people. You don't want to annoy the Romans. You don't want to annoy the Romans because they will come in and they'll take it out on the Jewish people. And so Caiaphas is saying, this guy is causing too much commotion. We should go ahead and take him out before the Romans get, you know, ticked off at what he's doing. And so he says this all the way back in John 11. And so we know Caiaphas now is not impartial. He's already said he's the one who got the ball rolling to crucify Christ or to kill Christ, right? So definitely not impartial. He also claims that Christ is guilty of blasphemy and claiming to be the Son of God. He says, even in Mark 14, 61, he asks Jesus, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
Another rule that was broken here is the high priest was actually prohibited from participating in the questioning. Because he was supposed to be leading the council of people who decided if the defendant was guilty or not, he was supposed to recuse himself from questioning and let the others ask the questions because he's supposed to be the leader, right? But no, he comes right out. He's the leader and he's asking the questions and breaking that law too. And he even exclaims, what further need have we of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What think ye? So here's another law that they broke because blasphemy in Jewish court meant that you had to mention the name of the Almighty himself and blaspheme him. Christ does not mention the name of God at all in this case. So he is actually not guilty of blasphemy. And what Caiaphas is claiming is blasphemy. All Christ said was, I am. All right. So there wasn't any blasphemy against God in this particular situation. But they decide that he is guilty. And so they sent him on to the Sanhedrin, the entire council, instead of just Caiaphas and whoever he could rustle up at that time of night. So we're on to the Sanhedrin. Now, this is where the law about trials taking place at night comes in, because the Sanhedrin actually waits until daybreak. We see in Luke twenty-two sixty-six, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council. All right, so that's where we see that they waited so they didn't break that law, but they, you know, they broke everything else. I don't know. So unlike our American system that we have today, there's not a jury. There's not a judge and jury. They're not convicted by their peers. What happened in Jewish society was that there was a council of the Sanhedrin, and they were the ones who decided whether or not this person was guilty. Because of this, they had to have the utmost integrity because they were deciding on people's lives. So they had to be completely impartial, completely non-biased. And can you believe in this case that they were impartial and non-biased? I don't think so. I think that they were definitely partial and biased, right? So the laws in the Jewish society were set up to protect the defendant from the death penalty. They were set up to protect the accused. But in this case, every single one of those laws that was set up to protect the accused was just knocked out of the park, right? And they sought false witness against Jesus that they might put him to death. We read in Matthew 26, 59. And once a person, here's another law they broke. Once a person had been convicted of a capital offense by a majority vote of the Sanhedrin, the sentence was not to be carried out for two days in case new evidence should turn up, which could exonerate the accused. Well, we see right away that this particular sentence was carried out in like three hours later. I mean, it's crazy how fast the turnaround was on this. Then they decided he's guilty. They decided he needs the death penalty, but they know they don't have the authority to grant the death penalty because, again, they're under Roman rule. And so in John 18, 31, Pilate saying to them, Take ye him, judge him according to your law. And the Jews therefore said unto Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. So they're even claiming that when they take him to Pilate. And Pilate's like, he's innocent. Take him back. And they're like, no, we can't kill him. You can kill him. Why don't you decide that he's guilty and then you can kill him, right? And that is when we move on from the Jewish trials into the Roman trials. All right, so the Roman trials take place. Pilate is the first one who kind of has a questioning period with him. Then Herod Antipas, and then Pilate again. Pilate part two is the third trial. So first trial, Pilate. So again, we are changing the charges here because, you know, 
being the son of God wouldn't stick in a Roman court. You know, the Romans, especially at this time, if you think about Roman mythology, you know they are all about gods and goddesses. You know, so that was kind of the culture that was going on with the Romans and Greeks and things like that of the time. So someone coming up and claiming to be the son of God would not have been a big deal to the Romans. Like, they would have been like, oh, okay, cool, whatever, you know. What god are you the son of? I don't know. You know, so that was not a big deal to them. They would not have convicted him on that. So they had to come up with another charge to charge Christ with if they were going to get him convicted. And in this particular case, the charges they came up with, and we can see this in Luke 23 too, was inciting the people to riot, forbidding the people to pay their taxes, and claiming to be king. And we can see from those particular charges, the only one that even has any sort of like, I guess, kind of sort of realization is the claiming to be king, like the king of the Jews. And we see that when Pilate asks Jesus if he is king of the Jews, and Jesus replies, thou sayest it, in Luke 23.3. But, you know, again, Pilate's like, well, he's saying he's king of the Jews, but he's not trying to overthrow the Roman government, so... You know, I see him as innocent. And so Pilate found no reason to kill Jesus, but he knew that it would be very unpopular for him to stand up and say that Christ was innocent because he has all these power players from the Jewish culture standing there looking at him being like, put this guy to death, right? And he's got them kind of staring at him while he's doing this. And he's like, well, I can't say he's innocent. So, oh yeah, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, is in town for Passover. Jesus is from Galilee. Why don't I send him off to Herod? And Herod can decide what to do with him. Then it's not on my hands at all. Like, the Jewish leaders and stuff won't be mad at me. They can be mad at Herod. That sounds good. And so he sends it off to Herod. The charges for Herod, we're not entirely sure what the charges were there. It's never really mentioned. We do know that Herod was really excited to see Jesus because he thought he would be entertaining and amusing. He's heard all these different stories of the different healings that Christ has done all over the land. And so it's kind of almost like a court jester scenario. Like, he's like, yeah, bring this guy in. I want to see what he can do. Like, it'll be really entertaining, right? He's much more interested in entertainment than he is in innocence or guilt. We read in Luke 23, 8, and when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have some miracle done by him. And then, you know, he finds that Christ isn't going to answer. They question him over and over again, and Christ just stays silent, right? He questions about many things, but doesn't reply. We see in Luke 23, 9, Herod decides, you know what? He's not going to provide any sort of entertainment for me by answering these questions. He's not going to do any miracles or anything like that for me. So that's when the mocking begins. And Herod lets his court kind of mock and berate Christ. And we see that in Luke 23, 11. All right, so then there's something else that kind of comes weird kind of out of this situation. And that's that Herod and Pilate become friends, which is weird because they are really kind of like total enemies before. Um, I think we talked about one of the previous episodes where, you know, Galilee specifically where Herod was kind of in charge of was specifically thought to be the most seditious area of, you know, Israel. And so they thought if there's going to be a riot or a revolution, it's going to come out of Galilee. And so since Herod was in charge of it, Pilate and Herod were kind of like button heads all the time. Like they were not pals, but they came together and were friends over this whole Jesus situation which I think is interesting, but neither here nor there. 
All right, so Herod finds him innocent. Herod says that there was nothing worthy of death is done. In Luke 23, 15, he says that. And so again, he probably has the same thing that Pilate's got going on where he wants to avoid political liability because he knows not only would it be really unpopular with the Jewish leaders if he were to say like, dude, this guy's innocent, don't kill him. But he knows if he were to go back and be responsible for Christ's death, the people of Galilee, where Christ is from, and where he kind of has a stronghold, would be so upset with him. And he would not get anything done. It would lose a lot of political capital that way. So he's like, okay, I'm going to pass you back off to Pilate because uh, you're innocent. Nothing worthy of death is done. And I don't want to deal with you. So he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate is like, okay. What am I going to do with this guy? Like, I know he's not guilty. I can't put him to death. Like, you know, what do I do? And he's got, again, the Jewish leaders are kind of staring at him like, come on, put him to death. Come on. And he's like, guys, I, he doesn't want to stand up for this because it's going to be so unpopular, right? So he actually goes and he goes out there because, you know, it's their tradition that to release a prisoner and he gives the people a choice and he gives them the choice, but between releasing Jesus or Barabbas. And Jeffrey R. Holland, of course, I cannot have an episode without a quote from him. Jeffrey R. Holland has a really good quote about this in his conference talk from April 2009. None were with him. He says, Such ecclesiastical and political rejection became more personal when the citizenry in the street turned against Jesus as well. It is one of the ironies of history that sitting with Jesus in prison was a real blasphemer, a real murderer, and a revolutionary known as Barabbas a name or title in Aramaic meaning son of the father. Free to release one prisoner in the spirit of Passover tradition, Pilate asked the people, whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. So one godless son of the father was set free while a truly divine son of his heavenly father moved on to crucifixion, which kind of really explains that scenario really well. Just the irony of letting Barabbas go versus Christ. And Barabbas was actually guilty of murder and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, bad news. But here's the thing I think that was interesting. And one of the things I thought of this week is the crowd. Like, what is going on with the crowd? Because just a couple of days ago, when Christ came into Jerusalem, like, they were waving palm branches around, and they were shouting, Hosanna, and now they're screaming, crucify him? Like, what? What is going on here with the crowd? Like, are they just that fickle? And I don't I don't think that's the case. Um, I see sometimes in different talks and things like that, like, they're referred to as just being fickle, and it's human nature, and they change their minds about Christ, but I don't, I don't think that's it at all. I think what happened is we've got two different crowds here. And the first crowd is the one that was shouting Hosanna, and they're really excited that he was there. And if you think about it, this is going to be the more common people. Again, it wasn't the common people that put Christ to death and who did all this. It was the Jewish leaders at that particular time that did. So the common people were actually pretty much for Christ, I really believe. And I believe when he's riding into Jerusalem, people know he's coming. He sent his disciples on ahead to go secure a room, right? So people know he's coming. They're able to, you know, rally the families up. They're able to get the sick and the hurt who want to be healed by Christ, get them up and get them kind of along the side of the road to cheer him on as he enters into Jerusalem. But to get all this set up, I mean, you know how long it takes you to get to even church in a Sunday morning when you got a bunch of kids. I mean, it takes a while, right? So to get all this set up, all these people together, all these families together and everything took a little while. So that's his triumphant arrival into Jerusalem. Now, fast forward to here where we've got like a courtyard or area where you've got all these people and Pilate is asking, who should we release, right? Okay, so the people at that point probably didn't know the names of the people... 
for sure they didn't know that Christ was going to be on the docket to possibly be released because all this went down like between 2 and 8 o'clock in the morning, right? So everyone's asleep during that time. So there's no way that the word got out that fast. And then also we know that the disciples have been scattered, right? Even Simon Peter's there denying him three times before, you know, the dawn broke. And so the disciples have been scattered to the wind. There's no one there to go kind of rile people up and say, hey, come vote for Christ, you know, hey, we need your voice here in the crowd. But you know who knew it was happening? The Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin knew. You know, the Pharisees and all those scribes and all those people, they knew it was happening. And they would have been able to go and get the crowd kind of riled up against Christ. They would be able to plant people in the crowd to kind of shout, crucify him, crucify him, and kind of get the crowd riled up. So I tend to think that it was two different crowds. You know, you have a very biased crowd made by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish leaders. And then you have the crowd that actually supported Christ, the common people who are and like welcomed him to Jerusalem. Also, Pilate is a really good example of what happens when you do not stand up for things that you know are right. In fact, from the Come Follow Me manual, Ideas for Family Scripture Study, it asks, why did Pilate deliver Jesus to be crucified even though he knew Jesus was innocent? And what lessons do we learn from Pilate's experience about standing up for what we know is right? Pilate, because he refused to stand up and take a stance, let, you know, sinless son of God be crucified. Okay? And of course we know it had to happen this way. So, you know, everything played out like it was supposed to. But what a shame that he was so, like, cowardly that he wouldn't even stand up for this. Um, and it, maybe it wasn't even a cowardly thing. Maybe he just didn't want to deal with the annoyance of the fallout of the Jewish leaders, like, being hard to work with if he let Christ live, right? He just didn't want to deal with the annoyance and the, you know, it'd just be kind of a pain. So how many times do we not stand up for stuff because it would be uncomfortable, it'd be kind of a pain to deal with, or, you know, you don't want to deal with the anger of somebody? That's hard. That's really hard to stand up for what's right in those situations. And so I learned this week, you know, that's something I really thought about. I'm like, where can I better stand up? You know, I think I've mentioned before in some episodes, I have a really hard time when it comes to especially like missionary moments um, of saying, oh, I don't do this because I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Or, oh, I don't wear that because I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, standing up and saying this is why especially when it comes to stuff like coffee or, you know, here in the South, sweet tea. Everyone drinks sweet tea, but I always have to say, no, I don't drink that. And they're like, why? I'm like, oh, because it's got caffeine and I just don't drink caffeine. It doesn't do good things to me, you know, but I'm like, no, I probably should be saying I don't drink it because I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and we follow the prophet and he has told us not to and so I'm going to follow him. You know, and I don't do that, though, because it would be uncomfortable and people might look at me weird and it might be annoying. I don't know. You know, like, yeah, so that that kind of um, stood out to me a little bit. So I think I'm going to try and be better about that. That's the trials of Christ, um, just in a, a nutshell. What's interesting to me, though, is that the most sophisticated legal system in the world at that time, the Roman system, found the Savior not guilty, but yet he was still sentenced to death. So huge contradiction there in what happened in his trial. But with that, we will end Law and Order, Ancient Israel Edition. So now that we've gotten over our law and order of ancient Israel, let's jump into Come Follow Me for this week. Interestingly, you know, I love to start out with the introduction and the different scriptures and stuff from the introduction. And it talks about how, in word and deed, Jesus Christ exemplified pure love. 
even charity, okay? His dignified silence in the face of these false accusations demonstrated that he is not easily provoked. His willingness to submit to scourging, mocking, and crucifixion while restraining his power to end his torments showed that he suffereth long and beareth all things. And now, I actually had an interesting conversation with my dad about this this week. Because, you know, if you remember back in Matthew 26, there is the point where he's in the garden and someone's chopped off the ear of one of the people there in the mob and Jesus heals him and says, do you not think that if I wanted to, I could not call down 12 legions of angels? Like Christ had some firepower with him, right? And so my dad was like, have you ever done the math on that? We were talking at at family dinner on Sunday, and I was like, no, I mean, I guess 12 legions of angels is just like a lot of angels, right? And he's like, well, yeah, it's a lot of angels. But here's the thing. You go back into 2 Chronicles 32 with Hezekiah, and, you know, they've got the whole situation going on, and Father in Heaven sends down one angel. And one angel that he sends down to Hezekiah to save him from the Assyrians is able to wipe out 185,000 thousand Assyrians all at once. All right. One angel is 185,000 people he's able to wipe out. So if we talk about 12 legions of angels, a legion at the time in the New Testament was 6,000 people. So 12 times 6,000 equals 72,000. So we've got 72,000 angels, right? At Jesus's command. Just, he says the word and he's got 72,000 angels on him. All right. So let's say each one of those angels was able to get rid of 185,000 people, just like the one in the Old Testament was. Well, if we do 72,000 times 185,000, you have 13.3 billion is the answer and some change after that. So Christ literally had the firepower to come down and destroy 13.3 billion people. Now, keep in mind that on the face of the earth at the time of Christ, there were only about 300 million people. So he literally, if he had wanted to, could have called down enough firepower to wipe out the entire earth. Throughout this whole ordeal, if he had wanted to, he could have ended it easily. And he not only could have ended it, but he could have gone nuclear on the entire world. But he chose not to. To be able to have that amount of power and not use it, like we talked about in episode 7 with the Beatitudes, that's humility. Humility is not not having power. Humility is having the ability to do something and choosing not to. And that's what Christ was demonstrating, was pure love and humility as he went through all the stuff, all the mocking, all the scourging, all the, you know, just hatred directed towards him was so much humility because he had the power to end it immediately. His compassion towards his mother, this is come follow me, his compassion towards his mother and his mercy towards his crucifiers, even during his own incomparable suffering, revealed that he seeketh not his own. In his final moments on earth, Jesus was doing what he had done throughout his mortal ministry, teaching us by showing us, indeed, charity is the pure love of Christ. And so that was really powerful to me to know that he could have ended it again at any time. He just chose not to because he loves us so much. And he he demonstrated for us the pure love of Christ. All right, so the first section in Come Follow Me. It says, Jesus Christ's willingness to suffer shows his love for the Father and for all of us, which is what we were just talking about. And although the Savior had power to call down legions of angels, he voluntarily chose to endure unjust trials, cruel mocking, and unimaginable physical pain. Why? Why did he do it? Because of his loving kindness, Nephi testified, and his long-suffering towards the children of men. You might begin your study of the Savior's final hours by reading 1 Nephi 19.9. 
And here's what First Nephi 19.9 has to say. It says, And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing and of so naught. And so the disciples have been scattered to the wind, him, and he suffereth it. They smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. So keep that all in mind. You know, as we talk about the upcoming things, that he is doing this because of his kindness and his love for us, right? Where in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19 do you find examples of each thing that Nephi said Jesus would suffer? Yes, yes we do. We do find examples of what Jesus would suffer. Now, what's interesting to me, the hardest thing to find the example was of, they say they judge him to be a thing of naught. So, to me, that would say they judge him to be nothing. Like, they judge him to be so unimportant and below their notice because I feel like kind of like they did feel he was important because they made all these this fuss to try and get him convicted and put to death but the place where I saw him judged to be a thing of naught was when Pilate offered them the choice between Barabbas and Christ and the people in the crowd chose Barabbas so they were basically saying that Christ was worse than a murderer, a seditionist, person who caused riots, right? They're saying that Christ is worse than that, that he's lower than that. Um, and so that's really where I saw that. That was in Luke 23, 13 through 25 um, is where it kind of has that scene. And so that's really where I saw that particular example of what Nephi said. The other ones, I mean, it's real easy to find. For instance, they scourge him. John 19, 1, we read, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Matthew 27, 26, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Mark 15, 15, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them, and delivered Jesus when he had scourged them to be crucified. Now I want to take a moment and talk about the scourging. The scourging that happened was an attempt by Pilate to satisfy the Jewish crowd. Like, scourging was a really bad punishment. It actually removed the skin from your back. Um, And so for him to go in front of the Jewish crowd and be like, Look guys, okay, so this guy that you guys really don't like and you really want put to death, I punished him. I scourged him. I gave him this really painful punishment. Isn't that enough? Like, can we let him go now? Like, I, I did this. Can we just let him go? They're still like, No, kill him. And so... It's really sad, but that's one of the reasons why it happened, why Pilate had him scourged, was to try and pacify the crowd a little bit. So that's what I thought of when I saw it. They scourged him. Now, the next one is they smite him. And poor, I mean, poor Jesus. Like, the whole time, they are hitting him and whacking him with reeds and all kinds of stuff, like, this whole time. Now, we read in Mark 15, 19, And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And that's also probably in quotations, like a sarcastic worshipped him. Like, you know, they they were making fun of him. And I will also say this, because the next line is they spit upon him. And they've separated smite and spit upon him, but the scriptures are pretty much the same for the two. Okay, so I'm going to combine those two. And in Matthew 27, 30, it says, They spit upon him, and they took the reed and smote him on the head. And in John 19, and said, John 19, 3, and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. All right, so they, you know, just basically abused him and just tortured him. The thing to me, though, that stood out to this that I am grateful for as I went in and actually looked at this, because, again, I said before, like, I thought these trials took place, like, over days. I thought he had to undergo this torture for days, but it was just a couple hours. 
which again is no excuse and was horrible and awful. But I'm grateful that my Savior didn't have to undergo this for days and days and days. Um, it was a comfort to me to find out that it was just a couple hours that he went through this. Next section in Come Follow Me. Which passages help you feel the loving kindness of Heavenly Father and Jesus towards you? I will just say like these whole sections of scripture help me feel that. Um, it helped me feel so much of how alone Christ was through a lot of this and how unfair it was and how awful and just, you know, against the rules the law that was supposed to protect people did not protect him. Unjust, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It was just unjust, the whole thing. And so specifically, though, the passages that helped me feel the loving kindness of Heavenly Father and Jesus towards me. Um, the first one I can think of is the one where God abandons Jesus. And I know that sounds weird to say that that would demonstrate loving kindness to me, but it did. And actually, there's a quote later on in Come Follow Me from Jeffrey R. Holland about this. And I actually want to go in and read it to you guys real quick. Um, it's Jeffrey R. Holland's conference talk, None Were With Him. And so here's the quote, and I'm actually reading an expanded version of the quote, more from the talk than is just in Come Follow Me. Okay, the loss of mortal support he had anticipated, but apparently he had not comprehended that his Father in Heaven would also leave him. Had he not said to his disciples, Behold, the hour is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. It's heartbreaking to think that even before he was about to go through this, he still thought that his Father in heaven was going to be with him the whole time. That is heartbreaking to me. And then Jeffrey R. Holland continues, With all the conviction of my soul, I testify that he did please his father perfectly, and that a perfect father did not forsake his son in that hour. Indeed, it is my personal belief that in all of Christ's mortal ministry, the father may never have been closer to his son than in these agonizing final moments of suffering. Nevertheless, that the supreme sacrifice of his son might be as complete as it was voluntary and solitary. The father briefly withdrew from Jesus the comfort of his spirit, the support of his personal presence. It was required. Indeed, it was central to the significance of the atonement that this perfect son who had never spoken ill, nor done wrong, nor touched an unclean thing, had to know how the rest of humankind, us, all of us, would feel when we did commit such sins. For his atonement to be infinite and eternal, he had to feel what it was like to die, not only physically, but spiritually. To sense what it was like to have the divine spirit withdraw, leaving one feeling totally, abjectly, hopelessly alone. But Jesus held on. He pressed on. The goodness in him allowed faith to triumph, even in a state of complete anguish. The trust he lived by told him, in spite of his feelings, that divine compassion is never absent, that God is always faithful, and he never flees nor fails us. So to me, that was the ultimate example of loving kindness, um, that Christ would take that on. And indeed, it may have come as a surprise to him that his father would withdraw in that way. But it's comforting for me to know that even though he may have withdrawn his spirit of comfort from Christ, that he was always there. And in fact, maybe never loved him more than he did in those moments of watching Christ be faithful, even without his presence. You know, so that to me was a great example of loving kindness. 
And the next question it asks is, which of the attributes demonstrated by the Savior are you inspired to develop more fully? Well, obviously, humility was a huge one, um, because, again, he, he had the ability to stop this at any time, and he, he didn't. He took on what the Father asked him to do, um, long-suffering, charity when wronged, and also just endurance, being able to endure the hard things that life kind of inflicts upon us, and even enduring it when I feel like my Father has removed his presence, when I can't feel him, when I can't feel the Spirit, or when life just feels dark, to keep going and trust that he's there, the same way Christ trusted that my Father in heaven is there. So to trust my Heavenly Father, to trust that he's always there and always mindful of me, that's the attribute that was demonstrated by Christ that really stuck with me this week. In the next section of Come Follow Me, mocking of God's truth should not weaken my faith. While Jesus had endured mocking throughout his ministry, it grew more intense during his scourging and crucifixion. But this mocking could not change the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. As you read about the humiliation Jesus endured, think about the opposition and mocking his work faces today. What insights do you gain about enduring opposition? And what impresses you about the centurion's words in Matthew? What's interesting to me about this is I think when we are mocked, it is because people know deep down it's true and they are intimidated by the truth or they feel like the truth is judging them and they know that they're in the wrong or there's some reason that they're scared or angry about the truth, but that is why they fight against it. Um, And I see that in our culture, you know, the harder that we stand for what's right, the more that other people tend to fight against the things, the principles that we know is right. And I see that a lot, especially with um, people who've left the church. And there's plenty of examples of it in the scriptures, you know, Alma the Younger. and But I had an interesting conversation with a friend recently, and we were talking about another mutual friend that had left the church and how she ran into the friend somewhere. And the friend that had left the church, the first thing she said to my friend was, oh, did you know that I'm not Mormon anymore? Did you know I'm not Mormon? And these are all the reasons why. These are all the reasons why I'm not Mormon anymore. And my friend was kind of just like, uh, okay, thank you for telling me, I guess. Like, why would you tell me this? And it's interesting to me as I've seen, you know, with my own husband, and then I've also seen, you know, with countless other friends that have left the church, people as they leave the church, I won't say all of them, but I see it a lot of times that they spend a whole lot of energy and time kind of trying to disprove the church. Whereas if the church wasn't true, like, why not just let it go? Like, if you just don't believe the church is true, like, why not just drop it? You know, just leave it alone. If you really thought Christ was not the son of God, why didn't the Jewish elders just like walk away? I mean, again, you're in this like crazy Roman culture time and era where there's like, all this mythology and all this mysticism and stuff going on. Why didn't they just throw their hands up in the air and be like, yeah, okay, whatever. He's not the son of God. We know that, but we're just going to leave him alone, right? But no, they fought and like broke laws left and right to get him killed. Like I think they know deep down like exactly who he was. And I think that when you know that deep down and you have maybe that intimidation towards the truth or that anger towards the truth, that is exactly something that Satan can lean on. He leans on it and these people that have walked away from the church or walked away from the truth. And then they they spent all this time and energy fighting against it. And so I see that a lot of times, especially in those who 
have left the church and who know it's true deep down. And I have faith, especially in cases like my husband, I have faith that he will eventually realize that testimony and he'll come back. It's just going to take a little while. So it's my hope that when we see people who are mocking so openly, that instead of fighting with them, maybe pray that they realize the truth that they've got deep down and that they'll be able to realize that truth that they're already holding on to. They're just fighting against it. You know, Paul even said he was kicking against the pricks, you know, the pricks of his conscience, the pricks of truth that he had within him. And so that is kind of my prayer when we see people mocking and um, making fun of us for the truth that we know and the truth that we live. And we even see that in the case of the centurion. And he, after the temple is rent and, you know, the sky clouds over and there's all the, you know, earthquakes and stuff like that, he even says, truly, this was the Son of God. He knew deep down the truth was there. You know, he just had to have the right time or there had to be the right instance of events to kind of click it together so that he would overcome his pride and the fight that he kind of had in him and the truth could come out. That's really what I see when I look at people who might mock the truth and why it shouldn't weaken my faith. Next section in Come Follow Me. The Savior is our example of forgiveness. How do you feel when you read the Savior's last words in Luke 23, 34 and see the insight provided by the Joseph Smith translation in footnote C? And the Joseph Smith translation says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do meaning the soldiers who crucified him, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Referring to the Savior's words, Henry B. Eyring taught, we must forgive and bear no malice towards those who offend us. The Savior set the example from the cross. We do not know the hearts of those who offend us. That's from Ensign, May 1998. How can this verse help you if you have trouble forgiving someone? We do not know the hearts of those who offend us. That's kind of what stuck with me through this, is we don't know what's going on in the hearts and the minds, and the lives of the people who offend us. And I think sometimes if we did know that, maybe we wouldn't be so offended. In this particular case, Christ knew that these people were just kind of underlings, and they were following orders that they were given, and maybe a lot of them were caught up in the crowd making fun of Christ, and so they just thought it would be fun to go along with. And, you know, he knew their hearts, and he knew his heart, and he knew his Heavenly Father, and he knew that he needed to bear no malice towards them. And so even in his last moments... His last act was to forgive, which I think is pretty amazing. So it was a good example to me of needing to forgive those around me, especially those who offend me. Next section in Come Follow Me. What is the meaning of paradise in the Savior's statement to the thief? The scriptures, the word paradise usually means a place of peace and happiness in the post-mortal spirit world, a place reserved for the righteous. The prophet Joseph Smith taught the word paradise in Luke 23:43 is a mistranslation. The Lord actually said that the thief would be with him in the world of spirits. This is from True to the Faith 111. In the spirit world, the thief would hear the gospel preached. And this is a cool thing that sometimes I think we don't talk about when we're talking about the cross and everything. But what Christ was doing between the time he was crucified and the time he was resurrected. And if we actually go in and we look, I've got a quote for you guys. This is from Elder Spencer J. Condy of the 70. He says, The facts of Jesus' death and resurrection are hailed by those of the Christian denominations as fundamental tenets. However, what Jesus' immortal spirit did after his death and before his resurrection is a mystery to all but the Latter-day Saints. And the significance of what he did during those hours provides the doctrinal foundation for building temples across the earth. Furthermore, a testimony of what he did can greatly console those who mourn the death of a loved one. 
And that's from The Savior's Visit to the Spirit World from July 2003 in the Ensign. And if we actually go into Doctrine and Covenants 138, there's several scriptures that describe his time there in the spirit world between the time that he was crucified and that he was resurrected again. And it's a revelation that President Joseph F. Smith received that describes this time there. But basically he was setting up missionary efforts on the other side. And there's righteous spirits that were filled with joy and gladness to this, that they were able to receive the gospel. And so the thief that was crucified with him there, you know, he's like, you'll be in the spirit world with me today and you're going to get to learn about my gospel. Like, how cool is that? I think that's pretty amazing. So go check out Doctrine and Covenants 138 if you want to know what Christ was doing in between the time that he was crucified and the time that he was resurrected again, because it's got some good stuff in it. Okay, so that is it for Come Follow Me this week. So what I want to end with is a version of one of my favorite hymns, I Stand All Amazed, because this week I stand all amazed at the love Jesus has for me and the things that he went through that, you know, we talked about this week and that we read about this week. I am so amazed that he was able to do that, that he did it for me and for all of us. I'm grateful that I had the chance to go through and read the scriptures and bear witness to his suffering and bear witness to the cycle of the atonement and the things that he went through for me and the impact that it has on my life. So I want to end with This Is I Stand All Amazed by Kristen Pruitt, and you can find it on Amazon or any other place that you buy music. So I Stand All Amazed by Kristen Pruitt. stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me I tremble to know that for me I marvel that he would descend from his throne divine to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as mine that he should extend his great love
the Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.